Well, um, so, so we're talking about deacons today out of 1 Timothy 3. And uh, again, two Sundays ago, January the 14th, let's see, is that right? No. Okay, it must have been two Sundays ago, January the 7th, uh, we opened, no, 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 excuse me. Sorry, I'm totally confused. All right, so January the 14th, we opened our nomination period, and it'll go two weeks till the 28th at 10 p.m. So you can rush in here at 10 p.m., put in your nomination. Uh, then those nominated who accept their nomination will go through a time of discernment and training until August, after which they'll go before the session, which will further question them about their character, doctrine, gifts, station in life, sense of calling, and after that, if the session judges God really is leading this man to this office at this time in his life, they'll approve him to stand for election. That's our, our process over the next eight months. So last week, or two weeks ago, that's where I got confused. So two weeks ago, I preached on 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16 on elders. And this week, I'm going to preach on, on deacons. And you know, it's really been an interesting week to think about the diaconate. And we say the word diaconate, you know, that's the group of deacons as eldership or session is the group of elders. But, you know, to think of diaconate when, you know, a pipe bursts in the building and, you know, Greg and Mark arrive and Frank and then other deacons and everybody, youth helpers, and we're all trying to figure out, you know, the deacons take hold of it and figure out what to do. And um, there's a lot of flooding. We see all the furniture, equipment in our church. It looks a lot better than we thought it was going to look today. But quite a, a week to think through what all the deacons are in charge of and work towards. Also, Tuesday on our fast day, I was thinking about Lawndale's mission as a church. And just practically, I was thinking, you know, that was such a cold day, just a dreadful day. And what were impoverished families, what kind of needs were they having that day, thinking that through. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about that, my door rings. And I go to the door, and it's a very emotional lady who tearfully explains that for various hard and difficult reasons, she and her children didn't have a place to stay that night. I just can't imagine that Tuesday not knowing where you're going to stay the night with children. And it was also interesting, like the fast day, I'm praying and thinking about those very things, and nobody's ever come to my door with that kind of request before, but she was there. I was able to pray for her, and Longdale was able to help her out. These are the type of, of ministry situations that the deacons are regularly involved with, regularly throughout the year. Well, let's read 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 16. Just a wonderful passage. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall 
into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. They prove themselves blameless. And their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, for I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And the grass withers and the flowers fade and this good word endures forever. It's for us today too. So again, we ask, like I did two weeks ago, is it really that important to take a Lord's Day to talk specifically about elders and deacons? I mean, we wouldn't say that church government is of the first things of the gospel. We wouldn't say that. We can be Christians and, and not have church government or think about church government. Yet it's really significant in the Bible that it talks a whole lot about leadership in the people of God. You could go home and read your Bibles and just notice it. It comes out so often. And the reason for that is we're not just a loose, haphazard collection of people. We are this people that's joined together in the Lord Jesus Christ that occupies this singular role in God's plan to and carry out his indispensable mission on this earth. And so to do this well, Scripture instructs us that it requires leadership to help organize and structure us and provide direction and accountability because we are serious about it. We are very intentional about it. The church is God's hope for the world. Little churches scattered throughout the world are God's hope for the world. So I like the quote from Mark Deaver I mentioned a couple weeks ago. He said, churches rarely grow past the maturity of their leaders. Or as Joseph Piper said, he used that great little illustration of like thinking about this week. If you're in the kitchen and you're cooking, you're cooking a cake or something and you pour flour or sugar into a measuring container, you're gonna have to take a knife or something and, and level that out. But if you pour water into a measuring container, you don't have to do that. And the reason is that water has this property about it that it seeks at its own level. And it's kind of like a physical picture of the truth that the spiritual condition of a church will find its own level, will find its level. And that level is the spiritual condition of its leaders. 
Or like the counselor Dan Allender says, a leader is called to go further than anyone else. Wherever he stops in the progress of growth is, is where the group stops. So it's a huge admonition to leadership in all different ways in the church and particularly amongst the officers of the church. So Paul underscores how important this theme is. Verse 14 to 16 are just great. And it gives us the, the importance and remember that Paul like, planted the church in Ephesus only five or six years ago. It's a new church. And even back then when he planted the church in Ephesus, we, we read this in Acts 20, he warned them. He said, look, false teachers are gonna rise from within you and they're gonna twist the truth and draw people away. He, he, he perceived that this was gonna happen. Well, the letter of 1 Timothy shows it in fact did happen. And you read it and there's, there's fighting, like men are fighting. <laughs> there's this lack of love, there's false doctrine, there's this arguing going on. The church has declined miserably in five or six years. And, and a probable cause of that rapid decline is that the church chose unqualified men as their elders and deacons. That's the sense you get. So now Paul has been in prison in Rome. He's recently out of prison. He got his lieutenant, Timothy, to come along with him. He says, we're going to Ephesus. And he puts Timothy there in Ephesus to shepherd them through this mess the church is in. It's this big revitalization effort. Church revitalization is what 1 Timothy gives us. And so 1 Timothy then 14 through 16, Paul goes, look, I'm, he, Paul had to leave and go somewhere else. He, Paul says, look, I'm coming to join you. We're gonna do this together. But he says, it's so important what I have to tell you that if I'm delayed, I'm sending you this letter before I get there because people have to know how to conduct themselves in the household of faith. It's imperative they do. Timothy needs the reassurance. He needs Paul backing him up. So he sends this letter in advance. And he reinforces how urgent all this is by highlighting the elevated status of the church, this one local church of Ephesus, which equally, he could say the same thing about Lawndale Presbyterian Church. Now, who are we? Who are they? Why is this so important to talk about leaders? Well, Paul says we're God's household. We're God's family. And that means that we belong to God. He possesses us. It also means that God dwells in our midst. We're indwelt by God. We're a people indwelt by God. And our God is the living God. He's not an idol. Uh, he's the source of all life, physical life and spiritual life. It's that important. And so as this people indwelt by God, we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Like we together are that. And so we have the image then, just as a pillar and a buttress uphold and support a physical temple. Did you look at these vast, you know, Gothic temples or something? Pillars and buttresses uphold them. Even so, a local church like us upholds and supports the truth. And we do so by our words and by our deeds. 
And, and what is this truth? What's well, everything in the word, but especially we have the song given to us in verse 16. And the song is a gospel song. It gives the fundamentals of the gospel. We uphold the gospel that God the Son became flesh to pay for our sins by his death on the cross. And that once he did that and broke the curse there on our behalf, God resurrected him, vindicating him, saying he's the righteous son of God who paid the debt of sin. And God approved his payment and declared, in effect, paid in full. There's no sin outstanding such that you and I, who were by nature dead in sin, are now reconciled to the living God, alive with him. That's what we uphold and support. And so Paul is saying, as that significant entity that you are, I'm writing this letter so you know how to conduct yourselves as who you are. And in particular, in chapter two, he talks about worship. And in chapter three, he talks about leadership. And there's a sense in which we're all officers. Everybody here who confesses faith in Jesus Christ in a real sense, as an officer in Jesus' church. We belong to Jesus. We're equipped to serve him. We make that public. We make vows before the church. Like we commit ourselves to grow in Christ together. We commit ourselves to use our gifts for one another and for the world. It's the office of Christian. Or it's the office of a child of God. We bear God's name. But Jesus gives officers in a more specific sense too to lead us, and those are our elders and our deacons, and these are the two perpetual offices in the church. And so Philippians 1.1 sets it plainly when it says, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, the two offices. And 1 Timothy 3 is the most extensive treatment of that. It introduced deacons after elders, and it says likewise. And then just like with elders, it lists qualifications. And all this, you know, it supports the two-office view. Furthermore, that idea of must be, the elder must be, that verse isn't included again later, though in our translations we'll have it in verse 8 and 11, must be. But it depends on verse 2. So it wraps it all together as two offices. It also shows the deacons depend on the eldership. Well, three points then. The calling first. The calling, character, and commendation. The calling. Well, just like the calling of the elder... Um, just like their calling is given in the name overseer. So two words for the same office, elder, spiritual maturity, overseer, exercises oversight over a group. Even so, the calling of deacon is given in the name deacon. Deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, that means servant helper. Their calling is given in the name of the office. We're all called to be servants and helpers, but they're the first among the servants and helpers. Diakonos, that's what they do. The deacon leads, facilitates, promotes 
the ministry of mercy, deed ministry, care for the physical needs of the flock and outside the flock. And so our book of church order has a wonderful little explanation of this when it says this. It's an office of sympathy and service. I like that a lot. Sympathy and service. After the example of the Lord Jesus, it expresses also the communion of saints. So the fellowship we have with each other, it gives expression to that. Especially in their helping one another in time of need. It is a duty of the deacons to minister to those in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church, to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people, and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. They shall have the care of the property of the congregation, both real and personal, and shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings belonging to the congregation. I mean, we've seen that even this week. So it's a whole lot, really. I'm so thankful for the conscientious labors of our deacons in our midst. Okay, another way you could translate diakonos. It's servant, helper, but in this context, it can also be assistant, assistant. The idea of agency and instrumentality. So the elders are the overseers. Titus 1.7 calls them stewards. So if we're God's household, God placed stewards over the household to exercise oversight, guardianship, protection, administration. Well, the sense is that the deacons are their assistants who exercises authority under them to help ensure that all in the household are cared for well, not just by word, but also by deed. And the idea is that the elders delegate certain tasks to the deacons, whatever they feel necessary, in order to make sure the congregation is shepherded well. So the idea in that you have two houses of Congress that interact together, sometimes in tension, the idea is you have a shepherding ministry, word and deed, the deacons delegated by the elders to administer and oversee the physical needs of the body. And it resembles Christ's ministry in word and deed. So Acts 6 provides the best illustration of this. And it's really one of my favorite uh, passages And so what happens is we have in that text like the forerunner of the deacon ministry. So there's this intense conflict that arises in the church that's the most dangerous conflict or opposition they've faced so far. And it threatens to split the church. And so what happens is, as you recall, these Hellenistic widows, widows who had moved outside of Jerusalem or lived most of their lives outside of Jerusalem, they spoke Greek, and they moved back to now Jerusalem. And there were other group of widows that lived all their lives in Jerusalem. They spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. And so the complaint that arose up, the sharp conflict was the Hebraic widows are being served much better than the Hellenistic widows. And the suspicion was you're showing favoritism. Like y'all are Hebrew guys, you prefer the Hebrew widows. It was a really intense conflict, a lot of suspicion. And so the apostles gather everybody together and they just look at them and say, look, we, um, we just haven't done a great job. We didn't intend to do this, but we just haven't done a great job. We can't preach the word and pray 
and do a careful job administering the charity and physical needs within our body. We, we just clearly can't do it well. And prior to that, they were doing everything well. So two important things happen. First, they prioritize the heart of their ministry and the center of the church's ministry. They say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We've got to do that, it's indispensable. It's the heart and soul of what we're about, the gospel. But second, they prove the necessity of deed ministry to the point that they safeguard it by instituting a whole new office to make sure it gets organized and carried out well. Because Jesus shepherds by word and deed. They want to make sure the widows are taken care of well. So the apostles set these qualifications. The congregation selects seven men to serve tables. And these men essentially do what we would call today social work. Or as one pastor I listened to this week said, they essentially are the church's welfare agents doing this relational care of those in need. It's an intense job. And as this takes place in the church, it's stunning to see, one, how precious the communion of saints is. All the men are from Greek backgrounds. Is that the church wants to say, if you thought there were any favoritism going on, please know there is not. Take it all. You administer it. Love that. That deference in the body of Christ. And then two, these priests... Jewish priests observe what's going on and how they resolve this conflict and how they're caring for the widows. They would be the ones that are most opposed to the Christian church, and yet it says in Acts 6, a lot of them got converted. Seeing that kind of mercy undergone in the church. So we have an intense job, this energy, wisdom, attentiveness. And again, I'm so thankful for our diaconate, how they faithfully engage in this. And really before a watching world that doesn't understand the gospel, the first thing is probably not going to be the preaching, it's gonna be observing such a fellowship that reflects the mercy of Christ in its care for the felt needs of those who are going through hard times. Well, all of that, so what's the character of the men God raises up to administer that mercy ministry? Well, just like the elders, they must have certain qualities. And so Paul outlines several quality traits for the office of deacon. And so the first one is they must be dignified. And uh, he doesn't mean, you know, stuffy or formal. Rather, it's similar to the overarching trait above reproach for the elder. It's a life that just wins the admiration of others. It's just a consistent life, worthy of respect. Those who represent the elders in the shepherding ministry of the church must just be genuine walking with Christ. That's what it's looking forward to. Dignified. Well, then they can't be double-tongued. And this is a huge trait, part of just um, dignified. They don't say one thing to one person or one thing to another. They don't speak out of both sides of their mouth. Their words can be trusted. What they say is genuine and real. So if you think about Acts 6, how utterly important it would be that the men God raised up to heal that breach had words that people could trust. They could talk to the Hellenistic widows and the Hebraic widows. 
Well, they can't be addicted to much wine. It's like Ephesians 5, interesting, a letter to a church in Ephesus. This man desires to be empowered by the Spirit, not empowered or comforted by spirits. There's a sense of, of self-control in the use of wine. Well, they can't be greedy for dishonest gain. They don't use their position, their access to money for self-serving reasons. You see how important that would be. And positively, they're a group that practices and models contentment, just contentment with where they are in life and what they have. Such that in chapter six, Paul would say, godliness with contentment is great gain. How important just contentment is. So then they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And this is a great one. So it's true that deacons don't have to be apt to teach. That's not part of the office. We are blessed with deacons, a number of them that do teach in our midst, but that it's not required for the office. However, they are required to be students of the word, to love the word, God's revealed will, and especially the mystery of the gospel. And so that gets down to motivations for why we do mercy ministry. Like they would be awed that, that Jesus showed them mercy and amazed by the mercy Jesus showed them in their need that they would want to show mercy to others. So they would be full of wonder that the all-sufficient God became vulnerable to take their vulnerability so they could enter into the lives of other vulnerable people. I mean, a complete shift. Like, you look at those in need, you see a mirror of your own need. Like, that's me before God, that gospel-driven motivation. And they also are trying to live in line with that and bear fruit towards that. That's the idea of a clear conscience. And so you just look at Acts 6 again. You know, they're entering into this big conflict and there's no way they can't, as a believer, say, look, this is the gospel shown in this, in this light. Let me encourage you with mercy, but let me speak truth to you too. Well, then you look down and they're supposed to be the husband of one wife. If he's married, he's devoted to his wife and sexually faithful to his wife. Like Paul said of the elders, he's a one woman man, same idea. If he's single, not married, he avoids sexual immorality. So let's take this moment to go up to verse 11. And verse 11 has that great section that says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And that word wives can also be women. So just notice how Paul introduces this group, much like he introduced the office of elder and the office of deacon. It's really stunning. They must be likewise in a list of qualifications, just like for the elders and just like for the deacons. And so who are these ladies? Well, it could be a recognized group of ladies in the church that assisted the deacons in their work. It very likely could be somewhat similar to Lawndale ladies. Or it seems, and probably especially, given that in verse 12 it speaks about the wife and it's the same word, that's probably the wife of the deacon. Maybe both. And these ladies must have a comparable character traits as their husbands. And so why would these ladies, these wives, be included in the qualifications for the deacons? 
And just imagine this relational ministry going on, how impossible it would be for a group of deacon men to truly serve the physical, social, emotional needs of the lady in the church and the community without the help of godly ladies to come alongside them and exert leadership among them. They had to have their help. And so God also told them to recognize and included this body of ladies. And so we as a body are so thankful for Lawndale ladies and the deacon's wives and all the ways you lead in the physical mercy ministry of our local body, counsel and visits and letters and encouragements and meals. We would suffer a huge void without you. And the seventh trait is they manage their children, their own households well. And so the idea here is that he shepherds and invests in healthy, nurturing relationships with his children. And as with the elders, the family, marriage, and children is a proving ground for the offices of the church. Well, the wife and the child, children think about him being nominated for deacon or elder. So these are the fruit of the gospel that Paul highlights that enable a deacon to faithfully, effectively carry out this ministry of mercy. In verse 10 says, Paul, in verse 10, Paul says the church need to examine the deacons for that. It says this, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons and they prove themselves blameless. It's the time that takes time to examine or recognize or observe a man in this. It takes time to be among a body of believers. And notice it's also, meaning that the elders also had to be tested. So we as a church are charged to observe and recognize those men who are possessing these qualities that seem to be called into this kind of service in the body. Well, finally, there's a commendation, the third commendation. It's just great. In verse 13, Paul offers a very encouraging confidence to the deacons who faithfully carry out their ministry. I really want y'all to take it to heart, you deacons. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I want you to see that in verse one, Paul encouraged the elders. It's a noble task. It's a noble task you desire, beautiful. It's hard, but beautiful. And then in verse 13, he commends the deacons in this way. And in no way is the deacon less commendable to the elder. In fact, Paul's praise or commendation or encouragement of the deacon is even more emphatic than that of the elder. And we wonder why that might be. I just wonder this because the diaconal ministry can be especially hard and thankless at times and lowly work at times. Sometimes maybe feeling used or burned out or even hurt by how things turn out. Your deacon wives and Longdale ladies and all of us, when we lower ourselves to serve, often unseen, unrecognized, physical, emotionally draining ways, it can be tough. You know that, how you, how you labor our, our staff different ways. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul offers a special word of encouragement for faithful service. I just, it, it's motivating to see God give that special encouragement to that kind of service. However it comes out in your life, that unseen, unrecognized service that God esteems so much. So God says you're gonna gain a good standing, meaning honor and esteem and appreciation within the body of believers but even more, great confidence in the faith. And that's a deeper faith, closer, more intimate relationship with Jesus. And so we ask why that may be, that your relationship with Jesus will get closer. 
And I think the reason is the deacons are representing Christ to us as they show mercy. They're identifying with Christ as they lay their lives down in sacrificial service. You see, Christ is the true deacon. He's the one that takes on our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. And so Mark 10, 45, using the same kind of language, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel is that Christ is our deacon. Jesus is the ultimate deacon who serves us in the ultimate way. You see, God called him to show the greatest mercy and go down into hell to pay for our sins. God clothed Jesus with the right character traits to be able to do it. Like we look at ourselves, we say, I don't have that character. But you see, our true deacon has all the character traits. So that he can clothe us when we put our faith in him that you are this way, that's how I view you. And Jesus was fully commended at his resurrection. He goes down to the lowest spot, pays for our sins, breaks open the gates of death, must rise again, and God looks at me and says, well done, paid in full, you did it, you did it. He's called, he has the character, and he's commended, and that's the gospel. And the deacons identify with him in their sacrificial service, and in that identity, grow closer to him. And so deacons, you present to us, you point us to the true deacon, our merciful savior who showed mercy to our deepest needs. And so really when we study this, all of us, our desire is that our appreciation for our our redeemer, our savior, and his ministry of mercy for us will go more profound and will lift up our hearts with gratitude more and more. May it be so. Christ, our deacon, who serves us to the uttermost. Amen. Let's stand.